Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 34. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them, and they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve aside, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles, and they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after the three days, he will rise. Uh, Merry Christmas, and please be seated. Good evening and welcome. We're glad that you're here to worship with us tonight. Uh, as you just heard Jeff read, we are continuing in our series uh, in the book of Mark, also talking about Advent, the coming and, uh, of the Messiah and the waiting for the Messiah. Um, want to talk to you a little bit first about a couple things coming up. Uh, first, you see up here on the screen a way to get connected here at Grace. If you're not connected and want to find out more about how to do so, you can scan that QR code and there's a number of links that you can fill out just to get connected here. We want to be a group of people that really knows one another, that's serving one another and knowing one another well. And so uh, you can get connected by scanning that. Also, next Sunday is Christmas Eve, uh, conveniently. So uh, Sunday night, 5 o'clock, as usual, uh, we will have a candlelight uh, Christmas Eve service. So join us for some hymns and the lighting of the Christ candle. And we will also uh, light our candles from the Christ candle and walk out into the darkness to take the light into the darkness as we leave our Christmas Eve service. So want to um, invite you to join us. Invite the family along that's going to be in town if you're in town. Uh, but we will worship together and um, have our candle lighting service on Christmas Eve, 5 o'clock next Sunday. Also want to remind you that there will be no service on December 31st. We're not going to have service at all. We figure there's going to be a lot of people out of town, including me and Bo. So uh, we're going to take that week off. And then starting on January 7th, we'll be meeting in the morning. So two more evening services. So um, this is Bo's last evening service, he informed me, because he won't be here on Christmas Eve. So, um, so we're counting down to starting on Sunday mornings on January 7th, where we will meet at 1030. That first Sunday morning on January 7th, come early. We want to encourage you to start coming early to church. And so we're going to incentivize you by giving you donuts and coffee that first week. So we're going to have uh, some donuts from Donutland and True Coffee down the street is going to cater some coffee for us. So come early, meet some people, hang out, have some donuts. There'll be plenty for you, for the kids, for everybody. Uh, so join us for that first service on January the 7th. As we get started here tonight, I want to ask you a question, and this is not just a question that I came up with out of nowhere. It's really the question that we confront when we open this scripture that we're reading here tonight. I want to start with the question of what drives your life? What drives your life? Another way to put this is what big decision or big belief determines your actions? We may not be consciously aware of it, but we have made some big decisions or we have a big value that motivates our actions. It removes other options and helps us focus on what our life should really be about. So I want to ask you tonight, what drives your life? Caitlin Clark, who plays for the Iowa Hawkeyes, has something that drives her life. It appears that it's basketball, right? 
She's, she's pretty driven. This is not a hobby for her. Uh, she is clearly driven to be the best basketball player in the nation. And uh, by and large, she's accomplished that. But that one thing drives every action that she has. Do you ever have questions in your mind about how you should use your free time? Whether you should sign up for that soccer league or if you should sign up for that art class or if you should do a continuing ed class or what you should do with your free time? That decision has been made for Caitlin Clark. She has decided she is not going to do any of that. She is not going to take up knitting on the side. She is 100% committed to being the best basketball player in the nation. And that one big decision drives every other decision in her life. It determines what she eats. It determines how she uses her free time. It determines how much sleep she gets. Because that one big thing, that one big decision now drives her decisions. Tonight, Jesus is going to show us what drives his life. And the disciples are also going to show us what is driving their life. And it should shock no one that they're different things. So tonight, we're going to answer this question, what drives your life? Would you pray with me and for me as we get started? Heavenly Father, thank you for speaking through your word. Thank you for speaking into the silence. Thank you for sending a light into the darkness. God, we thank you that you have something to say to us tonight and we look forward to everything that you have to say to us. God, we pray that you would speak to each one in a very personal and individual way. God, just as the prayer that Tabitha read for us says tonight, uh, some of us are in the middle of that breathing in sorrow Some of us are in the middle of breathing out joy. And God, we pray that you would give your comfort, your truth, and your words to each one tonight. And Father, we pray that you would show us that you are imminently worthy of being the thing that drives our life. God, would you help us in our time of need? Would you speak into our lives? Would you say what you desire to say to each one of us tonight? In Jesus' name, amen. So if you haven't already, please open with me to Mark chapter 10. We're going to take a look at verses 32 through 45 here tonight. Uh, I'm not going to put all of the verses up here on the screen, just basically the first and last verse, verse 32 and 45. So if you could follow along with me in your Bible, uh, that will help you kind of stay with what's going on here. We're going to take a look at these verses, and then we're going to talk about what drove Jesus' life in light of this passage And what should drive our life in light of what drove Jesus' life. So, verse 32. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. The they they're talking about here is the disciples. The disciples are following Jesus. There's also another group of people. And it says that Jesus was walking out ahead of them and that they were going to Jerusalem. They're going to Jerusalem, which is significant. We'll talk about that in just a minute. That's why they're amazed and afraid. But Jesus is walking out ahead of them. Maybe you have someone like this in your life that is always walking out ahead and maybe just a little bit too fast. It runs in my family uh, for a couple of different reasons. Long legs, 
Long legs make you walk a little bit faster. Uh, I didn't realize this, but when I started dating my wife, we would go on walks, and she's like, why are you walking so fast? And I would say, I'm just walking. This is my normal stride. But my stride was different than my wife's stride. So it runs in my family because of long legs, but it also runs in my family because we tend to be in a hurry. Often, growing up, my dad would be walking out ahead of the rest of the family. I don't think it was for any particular reason. He was just kind of in a hurry. He was determined to get where he was going, so he would walk out ahead. This is what Jesus is doing. He's walking out ahead of the disciples and these other people that are following Jesus and his crew, and they're going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus is walking out ahead. We read in Luke's account of this same passage that Jesus' face was set towards Jerusalem. He wouldn't stay in Samaria in Luke chapter 9. Instead, his face was set on Jerusalem. He wasn't looking to the right or the left. The Samarians wanted to keep him there, but he wanted to go forward because his face was set on Jerusalem. Isaiah chapter 50 says, The servant of the Lord has his face set like flint. Meaning, my face is steady and focused on what God has called me to. So Jesus is focused and he's headed towards Jerusalem. So there's two reactions here. The disciples, it says they were amazed. And it says the people following Jesus were afraid. Why would the disciples be amazed and the people be afraid? In Luke's account of this passage, it says the disciples did not grasp what Jesus was doing. They did not grasp. They did not understand the full weight of what Jesus was doing. They're amazed. They're afraid. There's a reason for this. If we see in our passage here, Jerusalem is mentioned. They're going up to Jerusalem. Jerusalem has been mentioned two more times in the book of Mark. In Mark chapter 3, it says the scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying that Jesus was possessed by Beelzebul, by the prince of demons. In Mark chapter 7, we read, Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem, they saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled and unwashed. So they accused Jesus and his disciples of being ceremonially unclean. So All three references to Jerusalem in the book of Mark talks about the scribes and the Pharisees being in control of Jerusalem and against Jesus and his disciples. So heading towards Jerusalem means that he is headed back where the scribes and the Pharisees are in control of everything and they've already tried to persecute Jesus and his disciples. So the fact that Jesus is headed out ahead of them, walking in a determined fashion with his face set towards Jerusalem, makes them amazed and afraid. They're amazed because they can't believe that Jesus is going back to the very place where the people are that want to persecute and kill him. Some are afraid because they know what this means, not only for Jesus, but they may start to grasp what it means for them. So the people are amazed and afraid. They knew what this meant and they knew where Jesus was headed. Let's continue on, verse 32. And taking the 12 again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem. 
And the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise. Jesus confirms, punctuates, and says clearly that their fears are true. That that is exactly why he's going to Jerusalem. And this is not the first time that he said it. This is the third time that he said it. In chapter 8, it says, He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed. And then after three days rise. In chapter 9, he says he was still teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men and they will kill him. When he is killed, he will rise three days later. So this is now the third time in the third chapter in a row where Jesus tells them exactly what's going to happen to him. And this time he gives them the most details, laying out the progression of what was going to take place and every step of his arrest, beating, persecution, death, and resurrection. This assures us that Jesus knows where he's headed, and now it should be clear to the disciples as well. This also makes crystal clear to us that Jesus was not guessing what would happen to him in Jerusalem. As the New Testament tells us, it was by the plan and foreknowledge and purpose of God that Jesus should suffer. Jesus knows what is going to happen to him in Jerusalem. Yet his face is set on going to Jerusalem. Verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebdi, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask you to do. As one of the dads in our community group brought up this week, If a child asks you a question like this, it's a trap. If one of your kids comes to you and says, Daddy, I want you to say yes to whatever question I'm about to ask you. Do you promise that you will say yes? There's a child in the audience right now who I will not make eye contact with that is smirking. Like, I've done that. If your kid says, you have to say yes to me, will you please say yes no matter what I ask you? I'm not going to tell you what the question is but you have to say yes. Do you promise to say yes? Parents know you do not make that promise because the next words out of your child's mouth and the question that they are about to ask is not, can I go to bed? Can I take the trash out? It's not going to be anything like that. It's going to be, can I open my Christmas presents right now? It's going to be, can I have another cookie right now? Can I stay up as late as I want? Can I watch a show? Can I play a video game? Can I go to a friend's house? It's going to be any number of things that they want to do. The disciples are bold enough to play this game with Jesus. Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant us to sit, one of us at your right hand and the other at your left in your glory. Bold. There's three things that they could mean by this. The first is that they could still have the misconception 
that Jesus will sit on an earthly throne, have earthly glory, and that he will march into Jerusalem and take the throne, which is rightfully his as the king of all kings, and set up an earthly reign, and they are asking to reign on earth with Jesus. That's one possibility. The second possibility is that they are talking about a future glory in heaven. Maybe they, at this point, have figured out Jesus will one day sit in a place of honor at the right hand of the Father, and they're asking in glory to sit at his right and his left. The third could be that they have a very nuanced and very modern idea of glory coming through suffering and persecution and trial. Those are the three main options that they could be asking with this question. I think Jesus is about to show us where their heart is and how different what drives them is from what drives him. Verse 38, Jesus said to them, you do not know what you are asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized in the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit at my right hand or at my left is not mine to grant, but is for those for whom it has been prepared. We're going to talk more about all the things that what Jesus says mean, because there's a lot he's saying here. But for now, what we need to be clear on is two things. Okay, you want to follow me? If you follow me, you will suffer. I'm about to suffer. I know why I'm going to Jerusalem. And if you follow me, you will suffer too. And you will suffer. The second thing is he says, but glory, that's for the Father to decide. There will be some who sit in glory next to me, but it's not my decision. It's not your decision. It's the Father's decision. That's what he's saying to them here. We'll get back to that section in just a moment. Verse 41. And when the ten heard it, they began to be indignant at James and John. No kidding. No kidding. They're indignant for a host of reasons and maybe all of these reasons. They're indignant because James and John had the gall to ask for this. They're indignant with them because they asked first. Maybe they wanted to ask the same question. They're indignant because now they have shown Jesus they don't really know what Jesus is talking about. The other disciples are indignant. Verse 42, and Jesus called them to him and he said to them, you know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be a slave of all. This is Jesus expanding on what we talked about last week and what you can look back at in chapter 10, verses 30 through 31, where he says the first will be last and the last first. Jesus is getting more vivid, giving us more of a picture of not only what this looks like in some abstract leadership, servant leadership way, he is showing them, I'm going to show you what it means that the first shall be last and the last will be first. In my death, in my resurrection, 
and in my future glory. He's saying to them also that leaders who follow Jesus will look and act differently. He's saying to them, I'm about to show you what glory looks like. I'm about to show you what it looks like to lead. And it's not the way the Gentiles do. They lord it over people. Jesus here is flipping every idea of glory and leadership up on its head. And before we think that we're too modern and sophisticated, the church does not have a good track record, not this church, but just the big C church, does not have a good track record of acting any different than he's saying the Gentiles act here. Where shepherds who are put in a leadership position instead of shepherding the church lord their leadership over others in a controlling way. And it has hurt the testimony of Christ. He's saying here that a leader will serve. A leader will not rule over. A leader will be one that lays down his life for others. And Jesus not only says, hey, this is an abstract concept. Jesus is going to say, here, I'll show you what it looks like. Verse 45, for even, for even the son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. This phrase, the son of man, Jesus has used this continually throughout Mark. And this is the shorthand way of him saying that he is the Messiah. The son of man in the Old Testament is a future messianic king that would come and deliver his people. And Jesus is saying two extraordinary things here. He's saying, I'm that Messiah, that son of man, that future Messiah king that would come, and I'm going to give my life as a ransom for many. This is the thing that did not add up in the Jews' mind. They had no context for a Messiah that would come and give his life as a ransom for his people. We can look back now and connect the dots in the Old Testament, but the rabbis of the day were not doing so. Part of the disciples were still waiting on a Jesus that rides into Jerusalem, not on a small little donkey, but on a conquering horse as the king of all kings, which he deserved to be. Jesus says, I'm that messianic king, but first I have to give my life as a ransom for many. Jesus is not teaching them some abstract concept about leadership. He's saying first, I have to go and I have to suffer and give my life. This term ransom is the term in ancient Greek, in everyday Greek, and classical Greek, all the different kinds of Greek. This is the term for the money that you would pay to free a slave. This is a redemption fee. That's what a ransom was. That if a, a slave owed a debt to their owner, whether it be financial or years of service or whatever it would be, someone would come, a kinsman redeemer in the Old Testament, that's the same word picture here. 
a redeemer would come and give that service or give money to free that slave. Jesus here is saying that he is going to give his life to free his people. Jesus is going to give his life and put himself subject to death when they are the ones that deserve it. So I want to return to this question. What drives your life? Before we can answer this question, especially if you already consider yourself a Christ follower, we have to recap and take a look at what the Bible tells us drove Jesus' life. So, first, what drove Jesus' life? Three things. The Father's glory, future glorification, and our joy. First, the Father's glory drove every decision that Jesus made to the point where it wasn't even a decision anymore. Remember a few weeks ago when we talked about Jesus' call to discipleship and he says, deny yourself, take up your cross, follow me. Jesus said, I'm going to glorify the Father whatever it takes. And that means taking up my cross, walking to my death, being the Messiah and the servant and the sufferer and the savior that we see in scripture. Jesus made this his highest aim to glorify the father and every decision he made fell under that. Does it glorify the father? He always did the will of the father. He always lived for the father's glory. When we look at his beautiful prayer, for his disciples and for himself and for us from John 17, we see his heart to do the will of the Father. Second, he had his eyes set on future glorification. He did not settle for earthly glory, which he could have claimed. Think of all the people that tried to honor him and praise him and make him someone that more people would follow and time and time again and Mark he says don't tell anyone don't tell anyone don't tell anyone don't go back and tell anyone Jesus could have had all kinds of honor all kinds of glory he could have walked up to King Herod the puppet king and said that's my seat I'm the king but he didn't settle for earthly glory and earthly honor, which he totally deserved. No, he set that aside because his eyes were set on a future glory. Again, in John 17, we see him talk about this. He says, glorify your son as I have glorified you by doing your will, by obeying your commands. He had his eyes set on a future glory. He also had his eyes set on our joy. Jesus had everything that he needed with the Father in heaven. Father, Son, Spirit in perfect relationship with one another for all eternity. 
Scripture tells us that Jesus was there and that by him and through him and for him, all things were created. He had a perfect relationship with the Father, the Spirit. They were in perfect relationship with one another. They had all the joy in one another that they would need. But they wanted to share that joy with someone else. They wanted to share that joy with us. Jesus set aside his comfort. Jesus set aside his happiness. Jesus set aside his life for our joy. These are the things that made Jesus walk ahead a face like flint towards his own suffering and death. So in light of this, what should drive our lives? What should drive our lives first? The Father's glory. The Father's glory should drive every other area of our life. An organizing principle is largely a business term, but it's been expanded into other disciplines as well. But an organizing principle is a core assumption from which everything else by proximity can derive its classification or its value. An organizing principle is something that either an entrepreneur or um, a business at large or um, even someone that's going out to, going about to write a, a book, a novel, the organizing principle is the main thing that they're after that determines all the other decisions that they make. We have some of these as a church. There's, there's values that we have. There's organizing principles that we have that help us make other decisions. We're making lots of decisions right now as we look to transition from being one church in two locations to be out on our own. We're having to make a lot of decisions, some big and some small. But there are organizing principles and values that are causing us to make those decisions and make those decisions more quickly because we have something that is an organizing principle. When you find an organizing principle, other decisions are practically made for you. Jesus had already decided, I am going to do the Father's will and glorify him. And it made other decisions for him. This is the call we have on our life too, to live for the Father's glory. And that will help us make the decisions that we need to make for our life. What does it look like to glorify the Father in my life? Second, future glorification. Future glorification. Hebrews 10, verses 12 and 14. The author of Hebrews writes, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God. For by a single offering he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. We've talked a lot in this series about how the kingdom of God is already but not yet. So are you. So are you. If you're a follower of Jesus, if you have his spirit living inside of you, then the kingdom of God has come into your life and into your heart. And you have been made perfect as you are being made perfect. That sounds really confusing. That's because it is. But the reality is that there is a future glorified, perfected, holy state that we already exist in because of what Jesus has done for us even though we are very aware that we are still being made perfect. There's a future glorification to come. There's a future glory 
that keeps us from settling for earthly happiness. When Jesus says, deny yourself, take up your cross, and follow me, it should be clear and implied and very concrete that we're going to have to say no to some things. We're going to have to say no to some happinesses and some comforts and some safety and some of our well-held-onto plans in order to follow him. This is how the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 is, say, is able to say, our light and momentary afflictions are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. Friends, there are times when our troubles do not seem light and momentary. There are light and momentary troubles that come and go and we don't think about them again, that don't impact other areas of our life. But there are times and seasons and troubles that do not feel light and do not feel temporary. Are the promises of scripture and are the promises that we sang here tonight just for those going through a light and temporary trial? Or is it for everyone going through whatever they are going through? This verse in 2 Corinthians has the key. It is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. There is an eternal glory. There is an eternal joy. There is an eternal healing and restoration and perfection that outweighs it all. A very small little glimpse of this is what you get when you go through something difficult and then years later, years, maybe even decades later, you can see how God used it for good, even though you don't want to go back you can start to get a glimpse of, okay, compared to what Christ has done, it was light and momentary. When we have an eternal perspective, we can see that weight of glory beyond all comparison. Let's go back to what Jesus said in Mark chapter 10, 38 through 39. He answers them, are you able to drink the cup that I drink or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And with the baptism with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. Jesus assures them that they will share in his baptism. This means two things. First, it means that they will share in his suffering. For most of them, it will mean dying for their faith. It will mean dying for proclaiming the good news. Baptism means basically an overflowing of water. He's not just talking about getting baptized at church here, which is a joyous event. He's talking about being overwhelmed by water. And in the Old Testament, when when something is overwhelmed by water, to a factor of 10 to 1, it does not mean like cleansing and New Testament baptism. It means the wrath or judgment of God being poured out. 
It means chaos. It means danger and evil. Jesus assures them that they will also drink from the cup. This is also encouraging if you're thinking about communion, but he means also the cup of God's wrath, which is what it means in the Old Testament. Jesus assures them that they will share in this baptism. They will suffer and die in this life for claiming the name of Christ and preaching the good news openly. But he also says that he will give his life as a ransom for many and then he will rise again. Paul in Romans makes explicit the good news nature of this baptism and drinking from this cup. I'll put it up here on the screen. Romans chapter 6, verses 3 through 5. Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? There's the the downside. That's what we're talking about. Being baptized into death, that wrath, that suffering, that pain, that bodily suffering. We were baptized into his death. We were buried, therefore, with him by baptism into death. In order... In order that just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. Jesus suffered death. He died in our place. He faced bodily judgment, suffering, and death, but he didn't stay buried. He rose from the grave. We too will be like him in his baptism. Should the Lord not return tomorrow, all of us will end up in a grave. We will suffer a bodily death, a bodily separation from happiness and comfort and from heartbeat. But just like him, we will rise again. And because he gave his life as a ransom, sinners like you and me that don't always do the will of the Father, that don't always live for the joy of the Lord, that don't always look to future glorification, we can have a place at the table of this Savior. Because we have been baptized with him in his death, we will also be raised to newness of life because Christ rose from the grave. Jesus says, I am passing up earthly glory and I am seeking heavenly glory because I want you to have a seat at the table with me. I'm not going to settle for being the king of the Jews or the king of the Roman Empire because I'm going to be the king of kings where some from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people will feast at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Jesus is saying, that's what drives my life. And he asks us what drives ours. The story of Christmas is the story of that light coming into the darkness. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your perfect plan. Jesus, thank you for setting aside earthly joys, earthly comforts, earthly safety, earthly honor and glory to give your life as a ransom for many. Jesus, thank you that those who 
know you, those who have repented of their sins and given their life to you, were buried with you in your death. Our sins have been buried with you in your death. But just as you rose from the grave, we can now walk in newness of life and look ahead to a future glorification. Father, we echo the words that we've already sung here tonight. Melt the clouds of sin and sadness and drive the dark of our doubt away. You are the giver of immortal gladness. We pray that you would fill us with the light of day.